The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15, or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR-type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deek speaking. Hello and welcome to Fofop. My name is Charlie Clawson and my guest this week, oh, my returning guest is actor, writer, producer and author of the upcoming book 12 Summers, Adam Zwar. How are you, Adam? Good, mate. Good. How are you? Uh, been, what do you I've think of my, my intro? I, I've been working. I got told off by listeners. Last time you were on, I didn't do an intro. We just started talking and then I did that about <laughs> two or three more times before the listeners were like, can you please introduce your guests we know that you know who they are but we don't know who they are so interesting because i i literally had a conversation with the producer of my podcast saying do i need to do intros anymore does anyone really care obviously they do so you've answered my question thank you yeah it's interesting isn't it because i've always what i've always liked about podcasting is the fact that it's not radio you know i do Mm. like that kind of laconic you're just entering a conversation you know maybe these two guys know each other maybe they don't but you're just sort of picking up and you've got to you know pick up the rhythm of the conversation determine if they actually do know each other and all that kind of stuff yeah some people who just want some traditional bookends and i understand that as well i i I, just just talking about because i love it when you and will do your kind of your tips and you never Mm. know where will's going to be yeah. You're always there. I mean, you're always at the, you know, somewhere stable, but he's like on the path or. <laughs> yeah, well, he's got no signal at his property. So he's sometimes. Oh, he okay. To, sometimes he has to walk up to, to the road to get uh, bars on, on his property. Yeah. What's happened to all of us? All turned into hippies, mate. All gone, all gone north. Well, I think it's just the age we're at, right? Like it's yeah. kind of. I was thinking about. Um, you know, the grand final pl- was played on the weekend and congratulations to the Demons. I mean, uh, I must admit, like the five minutes of, of happiness I felt for the Demons and their supporters was quickly swallowed up by just burning envy yeah. <laughs> and this sense that I'll never get to see it. But watching all those players celebrate and even the coaches <laughs> and the support staff, I was like, oh, that looks exhausting. Like, I'm sure that it's a real relief and, you know, the excitement, but... I figured that even if I was like one of the players, that after a day of that, I'd be like, I just want to go back to my hotel. <laughs> Is that okay? Well, that's right. Yeah, because they, they were doing a cross with, you know, as anyone who was watching a lot of Fox footy over the last week knows that every show featured a cross with Gary Lyon. What are you going to do with the trophy, Gaz? You know, are you going to, uh, what's been the lead? What's, what's the feeling like? What's the feeling like over in WA, Gaz? Um, and, Anyway, so it was. I think it was David King who said, "So, are you going to be? Are you still going to be doing talking? Oh, sorry, you're still going to be doing on the couch on, on Monday couch. night." And um, he said, "You know, he made a joke about partying for two days, essentially." And I thought, "Right, you're an old man. I, I, you are an old man. I, I, I'm exhausted just hearing you talk about partying for two days, guys. Those days are gone. I don't think you can. I don't think you reach a certain age. You just, you, I mean, you die, wouldn't you?" I think so. It's also because hangovers get worse. Like, I'm sure there is, like, Dr. Carl would be able to tell us, there's probably some biological reason why you can't process the toxins or you dehydrate mm. faster or whatever. But 
for me, it's just a general, I was thinking about it today, actually, you know, being a father also contributes to this, but it's sort of like just one day you wake up tired Mm. and then you never recover that tiredness and that's what getting older is like i just feel like one day i just woke up and it's like oh didn't have a good night's sleep and i've never been able to remedy that it's just like you stay in there beautifully put mate beautifully for the, put. Re- for the rest of the time you know you I just never someone, get over it i remember someone telling me that they think getting old is you know you're old when you injure yourself in bed when you wake up from <laughs> sleep and you've pulled something like your neck or your back or you're getting out of bed and you're like, oh, I've hurt something. So or your you, foot cramps while you're having you, sex. Can you hear, can you hear that, what's going on outside? Uh, I'm in Brisbane at the moment. It was the River Fire or the Fire River or whatever festival, that Brisbane's Moomba on oh, Saturday. Yes. And it sounds like they had some leftover fireworks because there is an artillery going up outside my hotel. Were you picking that up? No, I wasn't picking it okay. up, but it, it – it, yeah – any, when I was growing up in Brisbane in the um, going to school in Brisbane in the late 80s early 90s you know it was a police state so you know those won't and also fireworks were banned because uh, of the police state and I'm not joking you weren't allowed to march it was Bjorka Peterson government you weren't allowed to march so you couldn't march in protest if there were three of you walking down the street three abreast um, and the cops didn't like the look of you a Commodore would pull out and two guys in Hawaiian shirts would come out and arrest you. And so, yeah. Basically, what people are accusing Dan Andrews of at the moment, Joe Bjorki Peterson actually was. Yeah, like, you know, Joe was Trump before Trump. You know, it was, um, yeah, but also was a little more organized and because he, he was a, a man of God. Those sober men of God are always quite organised in their fascism, and um, <laughs> yeah, he, he was very good at advertising. Like he, he knew he knew how to get the the hearts and minds, um, tap into the you know Queensland fears. I was uh, well, I was wondering that the, the kind of legacy of Joe Bjorki Peterson and and you know the police state kind of attitude because you know the time I've been spending and it hasn't. You know, we were talking off air. My, my time in Queensland, which is now coming up on almost four months, was not intentional. You know, we just sort of came across here and then became, when the borders closed, became trapped for, you know, a lack of a better term. So I've been doing a lot of observation of like Queensland and Queenslanders and, you know, just I haven't really spent a considered amount of time here. And the one thing I've really noticed is when they have had, you know, there was a lockdown for about a week in the Gold Coast when I was staying there and Brisbane had, I think, a two- or three-week lockdown when they had the Interpoli, um outbreak. Is it Queenslanders? Like, they, they're they very compliant. Like, I was amazed by how quickly, once that lockdown happened, there was no whinging and complaining. You know, the play the playgrounds were taped up, the exercise areas were taped up. You saw no one out exercising, empty beaches. Police were out in little dune buggies, like driving along, like the Gold Coast, like beaches and the foreshore, and moving people on. And I was like, "Wow!" Like, there's a real sense of kind of obedience up here. Whereas, you know, maybe if it had been three months of that, there'd be a bit more kind of grumbling. But do you think that would that's that's sort of like a hangover or legacy from? I, I don't know. I'd be thinking on my feet here. I, I what I would say say at the start is that you've been in the Gold Coast of Brisbane, so it's like being in Austin. In, uh, in Texas, it's right. you know, so it more gets liberal. yeah, it's more liberal. It's a little bit um, you know, inner city vibe. Um, it's quite cool. Uh, 
the Gold Coast less cool, but you know where you're staying in Brisbane, very cool. Um, yeah, it, and then as soon as you go, as soon as you go like north, um, it can get pretty and inland. Oh my god, it can get dodgy. Um, so yeah, I, I I wonder if that's the case. And I'm thinking on my feet that if perhaps you know the the stronger history of there being a police state, the the more compliant the citizens are. Um, you know, I'm uh, having lived in America and then come straight here. I was amazed at how compliant Australians are, and I, I mm. ventured the theory that maybe it was to do with our convict past. So, so yeah, mm. um, it, it's there. There's possibly something there. Um, I would also say it's an aging, especially on the Gold Coast, it's an aging yeah. population, aging white population, very <laughs> very obedient. Yeah, it does sort of feel like it's the Florida. <laughs> Of yeah. Australia at the moment, especially now because real estate is going through the roof along the Gold Coast. And so those high rises, everyone, because we've spoken to a few different real estate agents and they said, yeah, so all these people who live kind of just inland of the Gold Coast, they're realizing that, you know, their family home that they bought in 1970 for $40,000 is now worth $2 million, two and a half, wow. three million million, $3 in some cases. Yeah, yeah. So they're all selling up and buying themselves beachfront luxury <laughs> yeah. condos essentially because they're old now and they're retired and Gemma and I have been renting one of these condos because uh, you know uh, there's been a whole bunch of vacancies with all the lockdowns and so you can get you know really nice apartments really cheap at the moment in the Gold Coast and I have been totally sucked into the lifestyle I, I realize this is what I'm going to be like when I'm an old man it's like I love being able to just like shuffle out from my front door and yeah. there's a doorman and then I can shuffle around the corner and there's a cafe and some shops and there's a beach and it's really just kind of it's clean and it's safe and yeah, you, know, yeah. you don't really have to worry about anything I mean a lot of it's funny you mention the states because even that that drive from you know the southern Gold Coast up to surfers uh, the Gold Coast Highway, I guess it is, it, it reminds me of Los Angeles so much. Yeah. Like it has that same kind of flat, um, almost like uh, cheap animation repeating strip malls. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. the Hanna-Barbera. You're like, yeah. can we just go past that strip mall? And then I'm pretty sure, like I've never seen so many cheap massage uh, strip That's mall right. places in my very, life. Very, yeah. uh, very Sunset or Santa Monica Boulevard. Well, it's um, kind of like if you took... Yeah, like, you know, Santa Monica, Venice, the beach, and, and you squashed it together with kind of like, you know, West Hollywood. You got that, it, it's got that yeah, kind of yeah. vibe to it where it's sort of kind yeah. of the beach lifestyle and the beachy people and the hippies and weirdos and trippers and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got the kind of, you know, muscle bound kind of dudes and, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And then you've got that, that kind of more, I don't know what you'd call it, like inner city, but um, not really. It's just, it's just, um, it's an interesting place. Like it it's feels pretty new. bleak. It, the, but the 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 bit you're talking about the Gold Coast Highway. Yeah, I feel yeah. depressed driving up that. Um, right. it, closer to the beach, I start to perk up again. Um, but yeah, with the you know you talk about the strip malls. Strip malls always yeah. make me a little bit depressed. I don't know why. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, because you can get some really good food in a, in a strip mall. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's uh, yeah, I I. Um, when I was growing up, they called the Gold Coast God's waiting room, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, it it is beautiful. It is it is beautiful, but it is, uh, you can go crazy there through lack of culture. But mm. uh, what I mean, what it's not like we've been going anywhere. It's not like we've been going to the theatre or anything. Hundred percent, and that's the one thing that you know, if you're going to 
if I was going to spend a significant amount of time here, then this is probably the time to do it because I don't look to what's happening in Sydney and Melbourne going like, oh God, I wish I was part yeah, of Yeah, yeah, you're not missing anything. You're not missing anything. Charlie, now, as someone who, 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 you know, you're a sports fanatic, like how has this, because, you know, I love AFL, but that's probably where my devotion starts and ends. And yeah. I found it a kind of weird couple of years, which it hasn't sort of tested my love of sport, but it's kind of, you know, given me a chance to distance myself and go, what is this thing that, you know, I've spent so much time oh, being yeah. involved in? Has it changed for you? I mean, having written the book, and I mean, I assume it's written now. I, I went to oh, man, I'm editing. a release date. For I'm, it. <laughs> I'm editing every day. You know, I just get lawyers because a lot of it's true. You know, obviously, all of it's true. Um, but the, uh, the I am mentioning cricketers by name, and right. um, and uh, even surprisingly, when you use pseudonyms, they might ring up and they say, "Say you use." Uh, the word, the name Charlie Clawson, it's not Charlie Clawson. You're actually writing about Joe Bloggs, but you, yeah. to protect Joe Bloggs, you say Charlie Clawson. They go, well, there's three Charlie Clawsons in Brisbane, um, so you can't use that pseudonym. Uh, it's better if you use uh, initials or a nickname or blah blah right. blah. And you go, okay, um, yeah. So look, my relationship with sport, um, but it has changed over the years because. Up until say two thousand and seven, you know, I the players were heroes to me, and mm. then I had to kind of as soon as I was older than the mo- most of them, I had to kind of grow up and go, okay, <laughs> you can't, you, you we need to have a bit more of an equality. So we need to have a bit more of an equal relationship. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, and uh, and so and also, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not pretending to know what it's like to barrack for Sir Kilda, but barracking for Carlton. Uh, in the last twenty years, this is not what Carlton supporters sign up for. Yeah. Uh, when we're when we're seven and eight, or in my case six, um, it uh, this <laughs> we were meant to have a winning team, and this mm. has been a very humbling uh, twenty one years. Obviously, uh, in humbling and it's something Carlton supporters needed because you know mm. we were a bunch of arrogant dicks, and I think we need to uh, learn about. Um, hubris and um, and just kind of you know just put a lid on and not be such a bunch of uh, obnoxious dicks um, <laughs> and so but I don't I think I think people still will you know if we do start getting successful ever I can't imagine it's going to happen anytime soon but if we do I mean uh, <laughs> I wonder how I wonder how long we will revert back to type or how long it'll take to revert back to type um but yeah, I've just given. I like. I literally have just shut off part of myself now to to yeah. it because I just don't. I can't invest anymore. I can't have my heart broken anymore. I'm sick of it. And I'm. I don't want to talk to a secular supporter. No, no, I get it. I mean, I'm actually in a chat with a bunch of predominantly Carlton supporters, and um, yeah, you know, I remember at the start of the year, um, one in particular, we he was so effusive about the coming season and. You know, the players you traded in, Saad, and uh, who else did you get off the halfback line? There was another player. Oh, uh, uh, Williams. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Williams. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, then as the season slowly derailed, and it wasn't just like, you know, what was happening on the field. It was just the, the boardroom shenanigans. And uh-huh. I mean, the deja vu is the thing that must be most frustrating is the sense that didn't you just go through this entire dance with Brendan Bolton? Didn't you just like, yeah. you, you went through this where you promoted an assistant a little too early 
And then the board was obviously not happy with it. And there was kind of, he was not supported. And then this incredibly strange kind of long plank that he was made to walk where every person knew what was coming, including the coach. Yet the board was this, this kind of, uh, you know, this illusion of, well, no, no, we're, we're doing our review and we're going to like, you know, make sure we evaluate every cross to the T's and dot the I's. It's like, just sack the guy, just do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It was, uh, yeah, it was it was torturous for him, and I, I hope he. Uh, I hope oh, he's going to go to Hawthorne. He's so got a, a he'll Richmond, be fine. Oh, Richmond. I think, it, I think Richmond. Richmond. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it it was really it was. Look, I did. That's when I I shut off completely. I thought um, I thought David Teague was treated terribly, um, but at the same time, uh, like I wasn't happy where the team was. I I thought the the board was. You know, I, I think there's just too – there was too many billionaires on the board. Mm. Um, you can't – you just don't – and ironically, they just – there's not a correlation between running your business and running a football club, um, mm. and they didn't seem to know how to do that. What I am interested in is, is like, you know, uh, the two – you know, the last two premiership winning – Teams both have female presidents. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think that's good. I think, <clears throat> I think there's something um, toxic in a lot of uh, boardrooms, and still, and something toxic in the AFL, and you know, there's just too many blokes. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, you know, there's a lot of uh, St Kilda copped a lot of flack when they appointed Nick Del Santo as the AFLW coach for next year, and you know, there is this right. discussion around the fact that, well, you know. Are you serious about making this like an independent women's league or is it tokenistic where you're still going to have the power brokers all being men? And, I, and you know, you, you listen to someone like Daisy Pierce, you know, who's been so amazing in the commentary box, amazing mm. footballer. But yeah. that aside, like her footy brain is so incredible. And I was thinking like, imagine if, like if Daisy Pierce wanted to coach she clearly knows a lot about the game. She's a champion footballer. She's achieved so much on the field. If she wanted to coach, I wonder if there would be a team brave enough to take her on. Like if the Gold Coast, for instance, if you know Stuart Jew finishes his contract next year and they don't get Alistair Clarkson and stuff, but Daisy Pierce puts her hand up and says, you know what, like, I don't know what her coaching credentials are, but let's say for argument's sake, she's done, you know, she's done an apprenticeship somewhere. Like, would... Could you see a future in which there is a female coach of the AFL men's team? Definitely. I mean, like, I was literally, I'm actually was doing, um, uh, I'm involved at the moment in trying to <laughs> get a, a film de- deal done. Mm. Uh, there's a um, an Australian woman who went on holiday to Kenya and she saw the local basketball competition. And she was a she was a well known basketball coach in uh, oh, sorry of women's te- uh, what well, sorry yeah she was a well known basketball coach in some minor league in Australia, and she went over to Kenya with her sister. She saw a game, and after the, after the game, she went up to the losing side, the coach of the losing side, and said, "You know, these are my credentials. Can I talk to the players?" And he went, "Yeah, yeah, sure." And he, she did, and. And they're a little bit kind of, you know, what's this at first? Who are you? You know, white girl, you know, talking to us like that. And she kind of got them all organized and suddenly she became an assistant. And then she ended up coaching the side. And now she's coach of 
the Kenyan men's basketball team. Yeah, right. And they were in the recently in the African finals, which they lost, but she took them all the way to you know, to the finals. And so I think yeah, it's a matter of time. It's just a matter of just getting over prejudices. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always that thing where you know, if the first woman doesn't work out, then everyone's going to freak yeah. out and say, no, you know, women shouldn't coach men. Um, I think this it's really been seamless, the umpiring, mm. you know, female umpires. So, yeah, mm. I, I think sometimes we just put – if we, we can't feed – you know, we can't feed our prejudices too much. We just got to let it – happen see what happens yeah I guess I mean if you'd asked me 10 years ago do you think there would be an established women's football you know a league that was getting primetime coverage and stuff that I probably would have believed that then progress does happen quickly yeah I yeah I'd like to think I mean I Slowly think the AFL is, I mean the AFL has dropped the ball in so many areas you know I mean obviously there's a racism thing which they keep stuffing up and yeah you know, the way which Adam Goods was dealt with but I think you know there aren't genuine attempts for them to be more inclusive like it's one of the you know they're doing the right thing when it's all the wrong people are complaining like when, when the Sam Newmans of the world are yeah. getting Jeff shitty like it. yeah did you read um, Mick Warner's book The Boys Club oh I've read bits of it you know apparently it's amazing I used to sit next to it's Mick it's great Can I, Mick right I was gonna I was <laughs> gonna ask you about that because uh I mean, he's he uh, actually he's got two boys. One's called Will and one's called Charlie. <laughs> oh wow, wow! Is he a fan of the podcast? Well, we didn't know because we because Will often has a joke about Mick Warner that's like you know he Mick it sounds like he sounds so depressed when you hear him talk about football. He's such a brilliant football writer, <laughs> and has such great insight. But Will thinks it's this kind of devil's bargain where. You know, the thing that he's so good about writing about and has so much insight is this thing that drives him mental, which is the AFL. Yeah. And uh, he sent Will a text, like, because we, we joked about it for a few weeks on the show. And then Will got a text from Mick saying, you know, I don't actually hate the game. I just hate the way it's administ- the administration runs the game. And, you know, I'd be more than happy to come on your show and talk about the book. Oh, so Will that's had great. To, had to write back a very, no, no, look, we, we you know, we, we, we understand that. It's a, we're, all, we're just joking. But I, I did read it and, some of the it's it's interesting because you know i don't really put a lot of time into kind of you know thinking about the the boardroom or the admin that's going on behind the game that i enjoy but then when you know they bring up when he brings up like incident after incident that i was aware of like you know the melbourne tanking thing and how dean bailey was made to take the fall for that you know the ins and outs of the james heard thing and you know even the daniel talia talking to his brother you know the bulldogs adelaide controversy yeah and the afl would just sweep in take like mr wolf in pulp fiction yeah (laughs) just like sweep in say this is how this is how we're going to deal with it you know you're going to take the fall you're going to do this you're going to do that and it's like on one hand I'm like, well, you know, I'm like, okay, that's their, you know, they're preserving their brand and they're, you know, this is a billion dollar industry and they're trying to kind of like get the best solution with the least amount of damage. But then when you actually read the stories of the people who had to kind of take the fall for these incidents, you know, like I really didn't understand what had happened with James Heard until I read that book and, and really, you know, what he was agreeing to. And it was almost a bribe in the sense they would say, you know, we'll send you away for a year, you know, you'll be on full pay, but we need a scapegoat. And when you sort of start thinking about it, like, oh, this is sounds kind of corrupt. <laughs> you know, you're not oh, actually- yeah, mate. It's a very I, – I, again, I, I didn't mean to have this – start this podcast uh, – have this as my theme, but it's a very mm. 
uh, male way of doing things is to actually have a scapegoat and to bully and shame someone into actually being the the, the scapegoat. And and whereas I, I find that women have a greater sense of justice, and if they do see um, something unjust happening, they'll call it out. Whereas guys, it's very military. You know, having been boarding school, I'm totally institutionalized with men. Mm. I understand exactly. The, it's all very hierarchical, and yeah. and we actually just name someone and go, mate, you're taking the fall, and you have to kind of just suck it up, and that's mm. that's part of the pack mentality. Um, I, I haven't read Mick's book, but but that just sounds exactly like that. I remember at the start, you know, cert, certain players, I don't know who it was, you'll be able to actually enlighten me probably, but in the Essendon saga when certain players started calling it out and they immediately stepped into action. They're like fucking, they're like bulldogs, all step, you know, stepping into action, shaming the guy, discrediting, discrediting him, shaming him and thinking it was all going to go away. It didn't go away. And one of the reasons why it didn't go away is women, wives and girlfriends, were wondering what the fuck was being injected into their husbands or boyfriends mm-hmm. and or was it going to affect yeah. their – or their sons – and was it going to – well, especially I was going to, oh, <laughs> I was yeah, going to say, it's going to, <laughs> it's going to affect their fertility, you know? And yeah. so um, uh, so it's it's like uh, that, that was really – I mean, and these guys are trying. It's we're all trying to be reconstructed, but it you know mm. is hundreds and hundreds of years of undoing to to undo. <laughs> yeah, well, it, and it's and it is some of those kind of old boys, you know that uh, that are you know they're quite open in the book. Like he he's not using pseudonyms. Like he's interviewing you know old board members of the Swans at Carlton, you know, and and one of them I can't remember which it's, but it, I think it's a it's a Carlton power broker. <laughs> You know, he worked there for maybe not Mike Fitzpatrick, but someone like that. And, you know, his greatest issue with the AFL at the moment is the way they champion progressive causes, like that every round is like some left-leaning cause. And in my head, I'm like, but like, A, I'm very skeptical about corporations that, you know, you know, Coca-Cola release a rainbow-coloured can or whatever. Like they're not doing it because they genuinely believe in equality. No. They're doing it because it's great PR. You know, yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. they've done their market research and you know, looking like you have a social conscience is better for your marketing. So, a there's that. But secondly, how does it affect you in any way? Like, how does it affect the the actual? If you really boiling it down, if you're a real purist, then all you care about is what is happening on the field. So if a club wants to, to be cultural diversity round or it wants to be, you know, like uh, uh, inclusion round or, you know, the pride round, then how does it affect you in the slightest? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And who, you don't know who that was. No, I can't remember his name. But it was a Carlton like, Power Broker. Wouldn't it be Fitzpatrick? Yeah, no, I can't remember who it was, but uh, but in my head, like the the picture that Mick painted, I could just see him sitting back in a leather Chesterfield at probably one of those private gentlemen's clubs. Oh yeah, the Savage Club. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. With Jack Elliott, got R.I.P. Um, yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, mate. It's it, it's really it's really interesting. I look, I I understand it's always messy. You know, when there's change, you know, whether it's going to be, you know, female coaches coaching men. Um, uh, mind you that, you know, that becoming president has been fine for 
the women who have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I wonder if you know. It's just. It's just. The, it's like in our industry with the with uh, diversity, um, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of people uh, who come in. There's a lot. Ro- there's, there's a lot that goes wrong along the way. There really is, and and the people uh, involved don't actually know exactly what's going what's going wrong because they're not, you know, because there's a whole lot of kind of shadow stuff going on, um, and but but it doesn't matter. It's just a three or four year little bit of kind of jostling, and then you're just going to get a whole bunch of spectacular writers and directors coming out who are diverse. And right, it, so so hang on. Are you are you saying that you know? The, the although the intention at the start might be kind of a bit clumsy or not the um, intention the the result at the it, it's just you know start, you have right. okay. you got good intentions well, it's going to be taking pains yeah that, that's it and then right. you know uh, there's many ways in which it, you know for instance in our industry where it goes wrong mm-hmm. um you know there's uh tokenism in, well you you have a writer's room it'll be half diverse right. And and what happens is the people, you know, some of those diverse writers, because they're inexperienced, will submit scripts that need to be completely rewritten. But no one's taking uh, that person whose script is completely rewritten retains a credit and never is told where they went wrong. What ends up happening is an old an old person comes on, when I would say old, around over 40, comes on yeah. and they call it grey bearding and they rewrite the script, all right? They get paid. Mm. It's a slush fund. They get paid and no one learns anything. It's it's just a complete waste of fucking money, right? That's yeah. that's an example of teething problems. But mm. that's rare um, and uh, what's happening is you are finding some spectacular talents along the way and in four or five years' time, We'll be grateful that we did it. Yeah, well, I remember. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, hundred percent. I remember seeing there's an interesting kind of debate happening online. Like, I don't know if you ever do this, Adam, but occasionally you'll see like a spat happen on Twitter, and you'll just get the popcorn and just start reading, scrolling the comments, refreshing the comments to see where it's going. And um, you probably remember. I think it was uh, Josh Thomas. Please like me, Josh Thomas. Oh, yeah. Made, uh, some comments he made years ago resurfaced where he was casting. talking about the yeah issues of casting in diversity and um you know he's since apologized for it and completely taken ownership for you know his comments and how kind of misguided they were but what i thought was interesting was the debate that was happening in the comments because i think i can't remember who came to his defense but it was someone who was kind of quite prominent and they were saying oh look you know josh I understand he said it clumsily, but, you know, what he's trying to say is that maybe there isn't the kind of um, breadth or depth of talent in that specific ethnic group that they're looking for in that role. And so that's what he was kind of addressing. The fact is, you know, that they didn't have people to go to. But then Briggs chimed in and said, yeah, but how do you think people get started? He's gone, if someone didn't take a chance on me and give me my first job, then how the hell am I going to learn to write or do comedy? Like, if you're always being... If your fear is always, well, they don't have the depth of talent, then fucking train them. Train them up. And I was like, yeah. I mean, that seems kind of obvious. And yeah. I don't. I guess it's the, it's the kind of privileged position that you come from is that, yeah, yeah. you know, I entered this business 
with no training or qualifications. I just decided, you know, one day this is what I'm going to do. And so I just started doing things until, you know, you get noticed, something gets you a bit of attention and then you follow that path down somewhere and you just kind of, you just kind of do it. But never at any stage did anyone go, hmm, can we find a role for this white boy? <laughs> can we like, you know, how are we going to justify? Like my first day on set as an actor I remember I had no idea what I was doing. I got a job on an ABC show and I remember stepping on set and I was so out of my depth. I'd never been in front of a camera before, only ever done like amateur theater and never been to drama school. And there's crew members all walking around and they're all using language I've never heard before, like speed rolling up, you know, and, uh, you know, Jeff Bennett who's a fantastic, you know, veteran director comes over and it's like, okay, we're just going to loop the scene. And I'm like, okay, no idea what looping the scene is. And then I get told where my mark is. I don't understand what a mark is or what I'm meant to be doing with the mark. And I just remember being like absolutely frozen to the spot. I could barely move my jaw to say my lines. Cause I was so, you know, aware of all this stuff that was going on around me now you know if 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 that if i had been like a diversity hire chances are someone would go god see they don't have the depth of talent the talent pool is just not deep enough you know we're not gonna make that mistake again but no one did that no because that that was never just that was never a question so i just thought thought it was a really interesting debate i think it's great i think it's great that uh that that happened yeah it's it is interesting there's a there's um you know, I think I've said this on, on your podcast before that there are, you know, there are people who come up through the industry um, uh, the orthodox way and those who come the unorthodox way. And I came up the unorthodox way. I just made short films and in those days, you know, you had to spend a lot of money to do it. Um, so I worked and saved and, you know, made short films. And I hear it. But, and that's how I got in the, you know, that's how I got in the industry. Um and that's not for everyone. Uh, there, there are certain gaps in my knowledge that that going the orthodox way would have helped. Um, if I had gone to RMIT screenwriting course, for instance, I reckon that would have just quickened up my develop development a lot. Mm. Um, so, uh, what's what's happening though is there isn't that just just in case anyone has misinterpreted anything I'm saying. I want to give you some context. In the 90s and 2000s and and before that, there were shows in Australia that ran for 24 episodes. And writers, actors, editors, directors uh, could go into the system, like new actors, writers, editors, directors could go into the system and learn how to do it. You learn how to write a script. You learn how to direct. You learn how to edit. Um, you learned from professionals, and there was a re- and it was actually made good economic sense to train you up. Well, that doesn't happen anymore because episodes of television only go for six or eight episodes. Um, sorry, seasons of television only go for six or eight episodes. And so, um, what ends up happening if you write a substandard script, the showrunner or script producer will normally go just go, you know what? Thank you. See ya. And then they pull in some old white guy and give him. 50 bucks <laughs> to have to rewrite it. And, it up. Yeah. And um, and so that situation, no one learns. And that's the problem that's mm. happening in this industry. There's no FaceTime. There's no mentoring going on. Um, not in a professional sense. The mentoring that's happen is happening is generally people who aren't working in the industry. Mm. Um, and so uh, 
I just think there's a problem in the in how uh, uh, the next generation of screen professionals are being educated. Yeah. And, and uh, we'll, we'll 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 see we'll see what happens. And that, that's not that's across the board. That's nothing to do with diversity. No, I, I think you're right. I think that's a reflection of where entertainment or you know the TV industry has been going over the last twenty years. You know, free to air and um, you know a defunded ABC, which used to be you know a training ground for you know that was the agreement, right? Is that all the journalists and writers and comedians would start on the ABC working for next to nothing but they would get their hours up and then they'd get poached by the commercial networks and that seemed to be the feeder system in a way and it seemed to work really well but now that doesn't really happen anymore and and it, it's interesting though because I when I was going home and away I was like oh wow this is a bit of a kind of um, relic you know the way this show's run the fact that they're doing this many episodes and they just pump it out pump it out pump it out and after I left, I was like, well, I'm probably leaving at the right time because I can't imagine that, you know, free to air is going to be around much longer. Like, you know, do people really sit down at 7 p.m. and, you know, um, watch Home and Away while they're having dinner and stuff? But then I checked the ratings just recently out of curiosity. It's doing great. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. It's powering, it's powering along. I mean, I don't know if it is. I remember talking to a writer on the show. Because at one stage, I, I was hanging out this in the script office a lot because I was like, oh, maybe I want to write a script, you know, just to, get, you know, just get some education, just work out. So I sat down on a couple of plotting meetings and um, was just stunned by, like, how quickly they worked. I mean, literally, you know, they plot over two days, like a week's worth of episodes. And, you know, you've got a list of the 30, well, it's like, 20-something characters that are on the show plus the five prime locations and then availability issues with, you know, certain cars because some are three-day contracts, some are five-day contracts. And then and then they have to plot out a week's worth of episodes on a show that's – for a show that's been on air for 30 years. So you try not wow. to repeat yourself. And, it, like, it was really interesting because I remember just sort of sitting in the plotting meeting and just sort of spitballing ideas and – I was just sort of throwing some suggestions in there going, great, and whack up on the board. I'm like, wait, I mean, do we want to talk about this? And they're like, no, nah. <laughs> we'll just throw it in and move uh-huh. on. And then from there, the, the writers will get four weeks to write the first draft. And then it's pretty much like a race to kind of just get those pages ready by the time you get on set. And I mean, to be honest, it's actually quite exciting because by the time you do get on set, there's a bit of trust put in the directors and the actors that, well, you've got this. And, you know, there's been six weeks worth of work put into this. But we've, you know, we figure you guys can can make something out of it. And so I, I used to quite like it. But then I remember talking to a writer about it. And, um, you know, she's doing a lot of great stuff at the moment now. She's moved on to do produce her own, own stuff, her own shows and, and write. And she was saying, look, I think it can be good and bad. She's gone, it's good just for the getting your hours up and, you know, just working in that kind of like super quick. But she's gone, you learn to write home and away scripts and you learn to write in the home and away style. I don't know it necessarily translates to anywhere else. <laughs> exactly right. So I'm just looking at my cat. Um, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that That's exactly right. Um, look, you just got to go, what's great about home and away or neighbours is it learns Sorry, it teaches you story and plotting and you just need to forget uh, how you write dialogue Mm. there because that's not – 
it's not it's not reflective of your voice or your speak. personality. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Because what, especially in comedy, it's all about the voice, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, tone. Um, so, uh, yeah, so you, you, that that flat kind of home and away um, dialogue well, what they doesn't do, really what, quite work. What they, what they kind of do is, you know, especially when they're bringing in new characters, is they've got archetypes, right? So you're the bad boy, yeah. you're the good girl, you know. You're it's the, good training. You know, That's good training for you're writing, the, you're, you're the father, yeah. But what they're, but what they're kind of doing is they're relying on the actors and to a lesser extent the directors to start shaping the character. Oh, wow, so, right. So, you know, like the character I had was like, well, you know, my, my archetype was like father figure, like good guy, vanilla yeah, <laughs> Vanilla, yeah. you're the alternative to the bad boy, uh, but father yeah. figure, you know, and and so you're given this character, and there's nothing to it. And once the once your introductory storyline is done, so they've introduced you as part of this plot, and you know that normally is done in about two or three weeks. And when that's done, you start kind of floundering because they haven't thought past that. It's not like they've you know done six months of you know plotting and a character arc and a season arc and stuff they've just come up with the story to get you in so what they kind of want you to do is start showing what you can do so if you can do comedy you start ad-libbing jokes or you start showing that you're really good you know with physical comedy or if you're good at action you know you show you can do that kind of stuff and then the writer's like oh fuck great we've got something now gotcha we can write to so they start then you know, and that's, I think, the skill of the script producer on a show like that is they're watching everything and they're going, you know what, I think so-and-so is really good at this. Why don't we write them a, a love, actually, kind of romantic comedy storyline? This guy's, you know, really good at doing the kind of Russell Crowe action-y stuff. Why don't we, you know, write him something a bit more like blah, 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 blah. And so I think that is the that is what you're learning. So it's almost like you've got all these little genres happening at once and you're tailoring it towards the skill set. Oh, the actor. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, actors of all different kind of experience and, and talent levels because you've got the super yeah, raw right. teens who are coming in who've maybe done one or two things. Then you've got your veterans like your Georgie Parkers and Shane Withingtons who have yeah. you know, been around forever and can do anything really. And then you've got your me's, <laughs> just kind of your, your utilities, to use a bit of old football parlance, <laughs> just a utility, good utility. You just played in a few clubs, played a few clubs. That's right. <laughs> Chuck the magnets about. Bit of a journeyman. <laughs> That's right. He's, uh, he's come over from he's South a, Australia. He's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a good, 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 good ordinary player. Hey, what do they say? You don't survive at three clubs unless you're a good bloke. Yeah. Um, it's uh, but no, but I, 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 mate, as a writer. So what happens in Australia is, generally speaking, is you write the scripts, and then you film, right? So you don't get a chance. Like unlike Home and Away. You don't get a chance to meet the actors generally before you, you, you film. And that is one of the great tragedies. I know when Shonda Rhimes uh, made her move from ABC to uh, Netflix, um, they said that's the model that they use. They, you, we, mm. we write the scripts and then we, we shoot them. She said, no way, we're going to do a pilot. That way I get to meet the actors and then my writers will be able to actually have a better idea how to write the, the series. It makes so much sense, totally. doesn't it? Because once you, you know, I've I've written a few things um, with someone, like you know, working in tandem with an actor, and when you have their voice and you know exactly yeah. how they're going to approach something, oh my god, it like takes half the guesswork out of it oh, no. because you know exactly how they're going to react. So much I'm fun, that, yeah. That that isn't done more. I mean, I guess it's just a budget thing again, of course. Look, you're trying to imagine actors sometimes, and obviously, it never comes. 
to fruition. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, you, you, even when you're trying... You know, well, when you were you, telling me about this uh, female basketball coach thing that you're trying to option, I'm like, so we've got Kate Blanchett or Rachel yeah. Griffiths or... Tony yeah, Blanchett. yeah, that's <laughs> right. Thinking? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it would be Elizabeth uh, Tebe- Te- Debecky. Debecky, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. six foot three. Yeah, she'd be great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> look, I, I, you know, that's... Uh, you know, so you, you you want to imagine who the actors are in your in your head. So you you try and you know you do the next best thing. You go, I'm going to imagine Charlie in this role. Um, mm. I know how he behaves in the situation, and what um, I can see him doing that that in that situation. Um, basically, you want a voice in your head because mm. you don't. Uh, most screenwriters have to have variety in their voices, whereas. Aaron Sorkin doesn't. All his characters sound like Aaron Sorkin, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know he's one of the few people who can get away with it. But normally you want to have quite distinct voices. And I remember when I was in in the states, and uh, Amanda and I uh, had a script, had a had a show with um, the producers of Suits, and they said we want to bring in this writer. He's a, he's amazing. Um, he can like if you read his scripts, you put your hand over the character names and you'll know exactly who he's writing yeah. for. And I'm thinking, yeah, he's had six seasons to practice that. <laughs> he's of course any writer worth their salt should be able to do that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, the act having the actors there it helps. I'm I'm doing something with um, your mate Roger Corsa at the oh, yeah. moment, and it's you know, and it's uh, I love tapping into an actor's knowledge set too. Like he knows a lot about music, right? And um, and that helps with the character. So I'll say, what um, what amp is he playing with? You know, what's you know, what's his what what's the guitar? What, you know, just asking all these questions, and uh, that really taps into his his nerd, you know, yeah. <laughs> his, his, his the nerdery that that he carries with him, and um. And suddenly, I look like a better writer because my writing's more idiosyncratic. But isn't know? that that's the, I mean that's the best or well, one of the best bits of writing advice I was ever given was like if you want to avoid cliche, then be accurate. You know, like <laughs> if you if you're writing a scene where you know someone's you know getting their heart restarted by a defibrillator, don't watch ER. Like speak to a doctor, find out some actual details about how these things go on, and find some personal stories about you know how that person administered did something go wrong. Like you know, and yeah. it's and it's so true. Like you can totally tell. I know when I'm being lazy in my writing is when it's like, oh, I'm writing a. F- seen from an, another film <laughs> like I'm literally yeah. just kind of aping yeah, something yeah. I've seen another film rather than actually you know trying to draw on real life experience or actually doing doing the research I mean do you ever feel like there are some roles I mean obviously a film like um, being John Malkovich you know I imagine Charlie Kaufman only had John Malkovich in mind I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if there was like being Woody Harrelson or, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you know a bunch of the but there, there must be, or, or Bill Murray in Lost in Translation, you know, where that the role just seems to fit the actor like a glove, you know, whether mm. or not that's something that's happened in the shooting of it or, or whatever. But, you know, do you think that that's ever, would you have the courage to kind of go, this is purely this actor's role and if we can't get him, then we go, don't go anywhere else? Uh, it's an interesting uh, podcast I listen to. David Chase saying that he wanted Ray Liotta in for to play a role in um, The Sopranos, 
and he couldn't imagine it being anyone else. And then Ray Liotta said no, and suddenly cast someone else, and it was perfect. You know, it was beyond perfect. So yeah. you do need to trust the casting gods. Yeah. I think that's very important. Uh, I mean, I've been saved by the casting gods many times when someone's not been available or something, and then someone comes in and just blows your mind, and you go, "I that that's it's probably ten times better than what it, you know my original idea." So, yeah, you, you there's a couple of things I'll say about casting, and that is be careful of always wanting to cast your friends. Mm. That's been a big problem with with me because they're not, they're not right for. You really need an open mind. I mean, unless mm. you're dealing with stars, and that becomes a kind of a commercial proposition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, if you just you must keep an open mind because you never know who's going to turn up and just blow you away. It's just, yeah. it's a real. I, and I, I've cast my friends and been kind of very loyal to them, and I think <laughs> that. Uh, um, it, that puts them in a bad position too. I mean, you know, we've all been yeah. in roles when we're not we're not the right fit. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've had any of my friends cast, gift me. <laughs> any, I can't even get my wife to cast me. I was going to ask you about that. Does Jem cast you at all? <laughs> Amanda's never cast me. I don't think. I think it, <laughs> I forced her uh, to cast me. Something. I think we we she had such a terrible experience working with me when she was in film school. She cast me in her second year. Um, film and uh, I gave her a lot of attitude apparently I don't remember it being like that but she seems to remember that there was a lot of attitude and so I think there's like a 10 year I was I was banned for 10 years wasn't allowed to be cast in anything but so, then you were flirting some... with her presumably I mean because she no, ended no, up being we, your no, wife we, no we'd be we were together oh okay <laughs> together yeah yeah right <laughs> Um, but I think she felt like maybe I was taking advantage of the fact that gotcha. I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't treating her with the same respect I'd afford a, another director that I didn't have a close intimate relationship. You're right, with. right. But then we've made a bunch of shorts together. Like I've and I worked as her producer for like a, a number of years. As yeah. Well. But I'm trying to think of the last thing that we did professionally and. No, I mean we were meant to be. She cast me in an ad. Like we we're meant to be doing an ad earlier this year, but that got kiboshed because of all the um, the lockdowns and stuff like that. Um, but then you know we have a, a feature film that we're working on together, where uh, you know I've written it and I'm going to be playing the lead, and she's going to direct it. But I think I'm hoping it'll be a different experience to a short film from 2008. You're, you're, you're a handsome devil, so I can imagine you being in a in a Gemma uh, ad. Uh, or, or like, mm. you know, she does those very aesthetically pleasing yeah, yeah. kind of cool ads, you know, where yeah. I, I would never be in a Gemma ad, not in a million years. <laughs> would she employ me? In fact, I'm going to have a word with her next time I talk to her. Um, put her in a really uncomfortable <laughs> position. Um, Amanda, uh, so when we wrote Lowdown together and I think I think that was part of the package that I was going to be, play that character. Um, mm. But, but you know, I... I um, don't know if, it, regardless of whatever the gender match is, I don't think the actor director thing is great for a relationship because it, it, it's power and balance anyway, and you're trying to be equals, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> you know, so it's um, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like I, I, I do. I mean, I have been thinking a lot about it because this project they're working on together at the moment, like it is quite an intense 
you know, it's a drama, but you know, it's it's kind of heavy. And I think that you know, the shooting schedule looking at is going to be quite abridged. You know, twenty one days or twenty two days. So it's wow. going to be stressful. And we have a <laughs> two year old, so like, you know, the the idea of how are we going to do this, and we're going to do it in a way that like, you know, because there is times on set, even when you love the crew you're working with and you love the people you're working with, where shit just gets tense. You know, yeah, you run into overtime and like. But having said all that, I did have um, Claire Tonti on, on this show a while back and she and her husband worked together more in the uh, uh, YouTube uh, um, podcasting world, but they have a business, Planet Broadcasting. And and she was saying how, you know, they're constantly questioned about how can you work together and how can you, you know, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It get in the way. And you and Amanda are probably the same. It, I think it gets to a point where, I don't know, like you just you just switch off that part of – you're, you just become professional. So even if you compartmentalize, I know when, you know, I was producing for Jim, it was very rare that anyone would pick on set if they didn't know us that we were a couple. It wasn't like we were. Yeah, yeah, same, same. We wouldn't arrive holding hands. Like that, you know, like it was always very professional. Was, you, know, you know, maybe towards the end of the job in the edit or something like that, when like, these two are always like coming and going like together, that they might clue in. But I think that, yeah, you just. They're talking about a two year old kid. Um, yeah. Like, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, no, no one knew, uh, generally speaking, unless they knew prior to that. Mm. Um, uh, definitely the professional thing kicks in. So as an actor, I would just like say to a man who was directing, um, when we had the rehearsal, I just wanted to know what she, how she envisaged the scene. I took it all so in. Did, sorry, so did you, you, you wrote it together, she directed, you acted, or yeah. did you write it? No, no, no we wrote it together, uh, she directed, and I acted. And so we nutted it all out in rehearsals, you know, uh, what it was – you know the intention I made. You know, so I was, uh, I so I knew what the game was. You know, when I went in there, so it wasn't any kind of like, it was. You know, I knew what I had to do, and it. I knew we we're on the same page by the time we went on set. Mm. Um, but I, I think, you know, as you know, if we're, uh, she's also directed stuff that I've written before, um, and I think that you know, in a way, that's probably. A slightly better setup because it's mm. just a little bit more uh, equal and and everything. I, I I think the actor director, I think the actors are actors are always infantilized a little bit. Yes, you know, and it, you, I don't know whether it's the chicken or the egg, whether you actually are like that or or you kind of have to be to you, you have to tap into that child in you to to be an actor. You know, I think it's I've always re- reasoned with it because you know I started off behind the camera like I was a runner and did a whole bunch of things behind the camera before I ever ended up in front of the camera and so I always look very respectful and and have a good rapport when it comes to crew yeah I always like I always feel like I can tell a lot about an actor by the way they talk to the runner the guy who picks them up from their accommodation like if they're dismissive of them I'm like "Mm, I don't know about you I'm suspect did you meet some did you meet some horrible actors Uh, yeah yeah I, I like I think Look, actors are a weird bunch, and I and I always talk about them as if I'm somehow separate from them. But I do sort of sometimes feel like, because I think there's two things going on. Is yeah, they are they are infantilized, infantilized, infantil. How do you, what did you say? I say infantilized, but it could yeah. be pronounced something else. No, I, th- I think I think that's right. Um, 
because they need to deliver. And and so, you know, if you've been shooting a 14-hour day and you've got the last set up and you really need this person to be switched on and plugged in and, you know, dropped, you know, well up with tears or whatever, but, you know, they've, they're hungry or they've been stressed or, you know, then you're not going to get the shot and all that work that you've done is going to mean nothing. So if exactly. I was the producer, I would be like, pick them up early, put them in a nice air-conditioned room, make sure they're well-fed. I don't want anyone, like, you know, bothering them or distracting them. Just get them into makeup when they need to. And and so you under, I understand that side totally. of it. Totally. But then I think there are some actors who don't understand what is happening in that process. Like, I'm very well aware that when I'm being picked up from my hotel and being it's not about asked you. what I want to drink, it's not a, they're not doing it because... You know, You're a good bloke. I, I'm a good bloke or I deserve it. They do it because they need me to be in the prime condition when the camera's on my face so I don't yeah. fuck shit up. Yeah. Um, but I think there are some actors, especially, you know, the younger actors that I've worked with, because that that's where it's really dangerous because that's when you're inverting the natural order of society. Totally. When a 14-year-old is having adults hold an umbrella over their head and bring yeah. them bottles of water and drive them places. And, you know, it's like, well, suddenly the power dynamics all shifted. That's exactly right. You know, unless they have really a good, strong foundation around them, like good parents, good tutor, you know, uh, strong producers and directors who sort of remind them that, you know, this isn't the real world. This is a job and this is why you're being treated like this. Because I remember what it was like when I was in high school. I didn't really dabble in drama acting until very late in high school. And when you hear that applause for the first time, you're like, this is great. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know you could. Think about it. You're the, going, you're going to, you're doing your job and you're getting applause for it. You're getting applause and it's so addictive and you feel so special. And then there's that other thing of, you know, when you work on a production, whether it's a theater production or a film or whatever, it's a very bonding experience, you know, it's a, yeah, that, you know, it's a very intensive period of creativity. So I think that, you know, when I left high school and was at uni, I did drama for a year or two as an elective at university because I was curious and I was interested to sort of see, but I was much more oh, you know, what's, I wanted to learn about the craft. I actually was a bit more serious about it. But what I discovered at uni was it was filled with people who just hadn't been able to get over that applause they first heard when they, yeah. you know, did uh, Guys and Dolls at high school or oh, whatever yeah, it was. And so Moorish. every second was poured into give me more of that attention and they were always on. And I'll never forget, like, uh, being at um, the cafeteria at uni and uh, – they uh, the 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 drama students wanted to do theatre sports every Thursday, and they would do it in the black box theatre. But no one would turn up because no one wanted to go watch theatre sports in their lunch break. So the drama students decided that they'd, if the audience wouldn't come to them, they'd go to the audience. And so they went into the cafeteria Fucking to drama do their theatre sports. Not mi- <laughs> but also like not mic'd up or anything, so you couldn't hear the f- what the fuck was going on. People are like having their own conversations, eating their lunch, you know. And then you've got these drama students in the one of the cafeteria pretending it's a windy day or whatever it was <laughs> sort of sitting there going like I just I don't identify with this like I don't identify with no, this no well, that's a different beast altogether I, I, I really like what you said though I think it should be uh, transcribed and put on, on a poster <laughs> uh, in, 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 in the green room of every you know say actor from 14 to 28 who's just kind of um Who's you know who's just got his first or her first job, and um, because what ends up happening is you're picked up from your ho- your nice hotel, 
in a nice car and you're taken to set whereupon you're given coffee or tea by a second AD and then you're led into the makeup and then someone just puts moisturizer in your face and then and then um, talks about whether you slept well or not and you know ask you about your fucking personal life and and then you complain to them and everything and they listen <laughs> carefully and then you make up supply and then you someone dresses you and you're fussed over all fucking day um, it's gonna fuck with your head it, it, you have to like not even you know you were saying before about well-meaning parents and everything I, even in that situation it's still gonna screw with your head I always think the first flush of fame is uh, a real test of character um, yeah and uh, I've seen it, with, you know, I think I said on this podcast last time, I said it with many people where you, you go, okay, I just need to see, just, let, just give them six weeks just to see if they get over this. Because it's mm. it's hard and I really, you know, I, I sympathize. Um, and some of the, some people do and you just go, good on you. You, you got over that quickly. Um, mm. Well, here's the thing. If they don't get over it, they may not have a choice whether or not they get over it because it get, can get taken away totally. so quickly. Totally. I love the, that and too. And that, <laughs> I love watching the, the journey. Time. I fucking love watching the journey. I've seen it so many times. Um, and uh, and then there are people who, it's, it's, most of them, is it, it, it's cyclical. You're kind of famous, then you're not famous, then you're famous. And by the third time, mm. you're you know, on the on the merry-go-round, you're you have no choice but just to be to kind of laugh at it and go oh it's kind of a, a silly thing but you know um i've you know friends with rebel wilson my god she'll never not be a, she'll never not be a superstar i mean she's locked mm. in for life now i reckon and mm. um she's got a theater named after her now she's got a theater na- named after her and she's got you know security details and all sorts of stuff so it's like that she's she's a lifer um mm. But yeah, I do think that what you were saying is really interesting. That you know, um, yeah, you are infantilized, and you forget after a while that it's not about you. Because you know, if 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 a person is being deprived of a whole lot of things, you know, say they're living on the streets and fucking searching for food and everything, that changes their personality. If they're given everything, then that changes their personality. Mm. It's it's, you've got no choice. (coughs) Yeah. Well, it's also one of those professions too where, you know, sometimes if you have, when you work for something, when it feels earned, it's a nice balance because you are aware of the sacrifice and the pain that took to get to that reward. And so you're very grateful and you're very conscious of the balance or the trade-off that got to that point. But sometimes, you know, for actors, getting a job is like winning the lottery. You know, especially if you get a big job, you know, oh, if you yeah. land a, a series that, you know, runs for several years and, you know, you buy a house and get all this kind of stuff. And then I think it's really it, – the thing that terrifies me about acting and why I've always done other stuff is that you can come out of that and it's like you start back at square one, you know. Like you you can be on a series and, and perhaps even sometimes being on that series for 10 years is the reason why you come out of it with nothing because – casting agents have moved on directors have moved on you know people have just associated you with that show and you sort of have dropped off the radar like it is this very unforgiving kind of system and it's also one where you know the hardest working and the most talented actors aren't necessarily the ones who get the jobs and that could be incredibly frustrated like i imagine that there must be 
you know, actors who are brilliant, come out of drama school, you know, go to London and do an extra two years on top of that and can't, and then find themselves going in for like a tampon commercial and they can't even get that. And they must be just like, what the fuck? I mean, I have all these tools. And then some <clears throat> reality show contestant will get cast in Neighbours, you know. And yeah, that, I mean, that's a tragedy. Yeah, guys. yeah. Like, you know what you know, I mean? It, yeah, if you're a PhD, like if, you, <clears throat> if you've done something, uh, if you've done all the work in science, in your science degree or, or um, let me talk about something I know. Say it's journalism. Say you've done everything in journalism and you've got impeccable contacts and, you, and you're and you a great writer and all those things and you've done the hard yards, you're going to climb up the top of the tree in journalism. Just, it's very difficult for you not to. Acting, it, it's a mystery. And that's yeah. why, <laughs> that that's why, you know, as Jeffrey Rush's character said in Shakespeare in Love, it's a mystery. Um, yeah. it, it's, we don't know. We don't know what people are looking for, mm. um, but yeah, I I think. Uh, what were you saying before? You just it was just before. Uh, the trade off. Uh, the yeah. trade off. The work yeah. that goes into it. Oh yeah, the, yeah. The lottery. Uh, forget. I, I had something. I had something to say about that. But yeah, it, it's really. It is like you know. Um. You've got all those great theatre actors mm. who don't. In my day, they became really great at, at at stage acting, but they didn't know how to get bring the cam. They didn't know how to bring the camera to them, so they reached to the character like they were reaching to the audience, and mm. so that's a mistake. So you, yeah, they need to learn kind of camera technique, and often that wasn't taught. And you had these great theatre actors who just couldn't do television. <coughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit tragic when, when that happens. And, you know, what I liked also is that kind of inverted idea of society that, that you were talking about too. It, it the, the it's good, the natural order of yeah, society. The, there's no middle management in show business. You know, yeah. there's not like you, there's no, it does not go in a linear fashion like every other industry. And that's yeah. heartbreaking, you know? Because you get to forty or fifty as an actor, I, I mean, I don't do much acting anymore. But if you, say you get to fifty, um, well, that stumps for a lot of people. <laughs> Just when you're meant to be in every other profession, reaching your height, yeah. it's when it's suddenly being taken away from you. I, uh, but but what I was, I just remember what I was going to say. Sorry, I I don't mean yeah. to be boring, but. Um, <laughs> You're talking it's about all the famous. Uh, we're talking about famous actors. Well, let's say twenty or thirty in Australia who are famous actors. Twenty, thirty people, mm. and they earn a certain amount of money every year. The people who earn more money, and there's probably about twenty or thirty of them again, are, are unknown actors who continually come in, turn up in guest roles, who do voiceovers, who read audio books, um, and do commercials can do three or four commercials a year. They kind of got an every man or every woman quality about them. Mm. You might go, oh, where do I know you from? But you don't know that they're famous. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably a better long-term prospect than being on a TV show. Yeah. yeah Financially. That, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, it, it, can be, it can be a devil's bargain, that success, because you just get too associated with one thing or product or – I mean, being—I always think that like if if you are someone who 
wins a Logie in your early 20s on a soap opera, the only thing you can really do is get out of Australia from that point on because Australians, <laughs> if, they've, if they've got 100%. form in anything, it's loving someone and then hating them very quickly afterwards. So, oh, fuck yeah. sure, make your name, get on the cover of TV Week and then piss off overseas and play your craft somewhere else. And then when you come back, they'll love you again. <laughs> but yeah. don't stick around too long. Oh, you're so right. You should well, write speaking, some of these things down to, after this episode. Just go, yeah, that sounds good. I'll write that down because you, people should hear those <laughs> those kind of hard and fast rules, you know? Well, uh, we, don't need to write them down. we don't need to write them down. It's a podcast. <laughs> just no, we, listen to the podcast. It's disposable, mate. You need to write it down and put it on a tea towel. I, <laughs> that's all great learnings come from is linen, kitchen linen. <laughs> you, know that, you know that famous... Um, Halftime address or whatever it is that's on YouTube where the guys going, it's fucking Sheila. She was half dead. You know, she was running in the marathon. You know that one where <coughs> it's a country footy address, right? Full of expletives, uh, <laughs> very sexist, yet mm. not intentionally. Um, it's a product of its time. Product of its time, or the person talking, and it's it's kind of like Spud Frawley's. You know, halftime address is in that same. Anyway, a mate of mine, uh, it was his birthday, and his flatmate, who was an Englishman, he'd seen that clip, loved it so much, knew his mate loved it so much, he got it transcribed and printed on a on a tea towel for him. <laughs> well, that maybe that's some five up merch I can look at. He's taking some quotes, putting them on details. Adam. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's late on a Monday night and you've been in your homemade recording booth <laughs> for over an hour. Oh, so mate, probably I love it. a bit of a sweat now. Uh, so great. I can't wait to have you back on. And uh, so 12 Summers, it's, uh, you can order it. You can pre-order it now. Is that right? You can. So it's uh, Hachette is the publisher. Um, I can and put a so link in the episode description below so people can pre-order it now. When is it coming out? It's coming out on December the 1st. Um and uh yeah I'm just trying to find that that speech for you it, so I'm gonna, I'm going to I'm going to send it to you but if I don't send it to you um get me the tea towel I can read it <laughs> Did you tip out correctly for the granny for the granny No I tipped the dogs I was totally uh, caught up in the Martin Flanagan of it all. I listened to too many uh, Martin, Martin Flanagan reading excerpts from his book, A Wink from the Universe, and it, it completely won me over to the doggy spirit. I should have just stuck with all the smart commentators and gone with the Ds. What about you? I, did, I was going for the Ds, yeah. But look, you know, I, I wouldn't have minded at all if the Bulldogs won. Isn't it interesting, that, you know, you guys talk about it all the time, but isn't it interesting that both those clubs, no one hates them? You no. know, no one really hates well, the killer either, though. So you're, you're no, fine. I don't think it'll be long before people hate the demons again, though. If they keep going like this, it, it doesn't take much to hate the demons. They're like Carlton, but just like Carlton Light. That's that's dead right because they're almost, almost my second team. There must be something about them. <laughs> I do like a, I do like dickheads. There we go. You do like a blue blood team, silver tails. <laughs> silver tails. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Charlie. <laughs>